Welcome to What's Not Priced In, a weekly investor podcast by Fattail Investment Research. In a world of confusion and rapid change, experts Kirill Prakopenka and Greg Canavan look behind the headlines to unveil the hidden opportunities within the Australian stock market. Now, let's dive in to today's episode. Wow, who saw that coming? The Reserve Bank thwarted expectations and hiked rates to 4.10%. On this episode, Greg and I focus on what this means and what the market is overlooking. We also discuss the ominous labor productivity numbers. Hint, it's not looking great for the employment rate. We then finish by canvassing Aussie banks and the threats Greg thinks the market is yet to price in. Does Commonwealth Bank warrant its premium? Watch on to find out. Hello, and welcome back to the third episode of What's Not Priced In. As always, my name is Krill, and joining me is Greg. Hi, Greg. G'day, Kirill. How are you, mate? Or oh, Kirill, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. I've been right. calling you Kirill for the past couple of years, but... I think it's, I think it's either or. It's either or. Uh, now, what I wanted to say is that, you know, as, as I think viewers probably already know by now, this podcast is driven by one question and one question only, and there's, you know, what has the market priced in? And it sure didn't price in Wednesday's 25 basis point hike by the Reserve Bank. I think 21 of 32 analysts polled by Refinitiv expected the RBA to keep rates steady. I think market traders pinned the chance of a hike at about 35% leading up to the announcement. So clearly the market was taken aback. It was a bit surprised. But now the analysis turns to what the market is thinking now. You know, what is the pricing in now given what the RBA has done? And what is the market not pricing in? And for that, I'm going to turn to you, Greg. Before I start, actually, did you expect the RBA to, to hike by 25 basis points? No, I didn't. I think when we chatted last week, uh, I can't remember exactly how we couched it, but I, I pretty much said, look, I don't think they will. Um, and sometimes you have that opinion because you think, okay, what, what am I seeing out there mm. in the market? How am I seeing stocks trading and do I think the RBA should be raising again? And we talk about this maybe in a, in, in a bit more detail. Um, given that they've already raised rates so far and so fast, they could probably afford to, to sit back and, and wait. Um, they clearly didn't do that. Uh, you know, I think I saw a headline post the meeting saying um, Governor Lowe has run out of patience with inflation and wants to, wants to act and... My initial reaction to that was, well, it takes time for interest rates to work. Mm. You can't run out of patience and just start pressing the button mm. faster, hoping that something's going to change. It doesn't work like that. And we had a discussion afterwards and um, I said something like, you know, let's assume interest rates act with roughly mm. a nine-month lag in terms yep. of their effect on the economy. If that's the case, and we don't know what the lagged effects are, there's you know lots of different studies out there, but you know that there is uh, the general opinion is that interest rates act on economic activity with, mm. as Milton Friedman said, long and variable lags. So let's assume that's nine months. There's still something like two hundred basis points of rate rises to yeah. still flow through the system. So my view was that the RBA can afford to sit back and wait and see because there's clearly evidence of things cooling off uh, and ironically we got it a day later when the uh, ABS released mm. economic growth data bear in mind that was economic growth from January mm. to March when a lot of the interest rate um, effects 
still were flowing through but hadn't had the had the full impact and that showed that the economy is growing quite slowly it showed that labor productivity is very very poor uh, so there was a lot of evidence come through the day after the rate rise to show that the economy is already slowing and now we've got more monetary tightening flowing through the system and as you said that wasn't priced in i looked at on the you know, right on the dot of 230 stock market tanked bond yields shot up uh, so yeah, it wasn't wasn't priced in at all, and rightly so. I, I think, and this is this partly comes back to RBA signalling, right? Like the one of the things that central banks have done for the past you know decade or so, or even even longer, is communicate quite effectively what their monetary policy decisions are going to be in order to not surprise the market. Yeah, and that clearly surprised the market, and and the RBA has been has been surprising the market for the past few months at least uh, so their, their communications aren't great and you could say that okay inflation is quite um, persistent and sticky and therefore they have to act um, uh, you know in a quite aggressive manner but as I say that that doesn't take into account the lagged impact of monetary policy so my guess is that in another three to six months time the RBA is going to be thinking shit we've tightened too much and we're going to have to unwind this at some point because inflation acts with a lag as well. Um, so I think they've, you know, in the same way that they loosened way too much in 2020, 2021, they're now over-tightening and going to cause more problems. And we pointed out in the podcast last week that the yield curve was very close to inverting. And sure enough, yep. on, the, um, on the day that the RBA increased rates again, the yield curve uh, did invert. So Yeah, I'll but I think the... I think the the yield curve is now inverted, and I think the last time it was inverted was in two thousand and eight, and I think it actually first started to be inverted in I think June two thousand and six, and then it was inverted for about for a couple of years. But um, maybe maybe you can just explain the significance to to viewers of yield inversion and why it's such a big deal. Yeah, and while I do that, I'll just bring up that chart you mentioned because mm. I think it's a really uh, it's a really interesting one. So. Um, here it is here. This is basically the uh, 10-year yield, 10-year government bond yield minus the two-year government bond yield. And in theory, the 10-year should be higher than the two-year. You should be rewarded more for uh, like longer timeframes of investing. And when the 10-year is higher than the two-year, it denotes uh, an upward sloping yield curve, which um, is, is a normal uh, structure for the for the bond market, and that suggests there is growth in the economy. That suggests that there's you know that a normal economy growing uh, you know in a normal way doesn't mean it's you know growing fast or, or particularly slow, but just a normal structure of the the bond market and a normal economy. When the yield curve inverts, it's the way it's a sign that the bond market's saying interest rates are very or monetary money is very tight. Uh, which will lead to a slowdown, and the the longer term bond yields react to that slowdown because it's it's seeing less inflation in the economy, and as we can see here, it's mm. it, this is the last time it dipped into an in, inverted state. So it did so. I think you mentioned back in uh, two thousand six here, mm. and it stayed that way all the way through into two thousand eight, and that was a pretty good indicator of what was to come at that time. Granted, here it's only just slipped into an inverted state and i think it's only a couple of basis points at the moment uh, so it's nothing too drastic i should also point out the us yield curve has been inverted for over a year now yep. 
uh, and you know people have been predicting a recession. The recession isn't coming, uh, but I would almost wager that the US is very close to a recession uh, mm-hmm. at the moment. And one thing that's propping things up is the the good employment situation. And just while we're on employment, this is another chart that you dug out after mm-hmm. the uh, economic growth numbers came out yep. uh, on Wednesday. And I thought this one here was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, productivity, which is GDP per hour worked, mm-hmm. uh, negative for the year. So it's essentially saying that that labour is becoming increasingly unproductive and uh, employment numbers are a lagging indicator as well. So often uh, when when the economy slows down, employers say, look, I've held on to these jobs yeah. for you know, a certain amount of time, hoping that things turn around. It's not turning around. Things are getting worse. We're going to have to start laying people off. And the fact that labor is so unproductive at the moment suggests that we could be in for a decent increase in unemployment in the next six months if the if the RBA uh, stays quite tight in its in its monetary policy and we'll look at some stocks later uh, but the stock market reaction and the reaction of the retailers and we're already seeing a lot of retailers issue profit warnings now suggests that those r- rising interest rates are really hurting um, so I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, the unemployment rate pick up strongly in the next six months and uh, the RBA will, you know, will be at least forced to stay on hold for a little while. So Yeah, and I think some, some more numbers from the, the latest national accounts. I think, uh, yeah, economy only grew 0.2% during the March quarter. Uh, and on an annual basis, that was 2.3%. And that was the weakest quarterly growth since the COVID-19 lockdowns in 2021. Uh, and GDP per capita fell 0.2%. Uh, and yeah, like you mentioned, GDP per hour worked fell 4.6% compared to the same time last year. Um, I think another thing that I wanted to mention from from that data dump from the ABS was that um, households only saved 3.7% of their income during the March quarter. And that was actually the lowest proportion of household income being saved since 2008. Uh, which is interesting because that sort of correlates to to the last time that the yield curve was inverted. But it's also interesting because mm. savings are down despite Australians actually spending less on discretionary items. So spending on discretionary items fell 1.1%. Um, and if you exclude the pandemic, this was the first fall in discretionary spending since the September quarter of 2019. So... Um, I think that it just goes to show the yeah. um, the impact that it rising interest rates mm. are having on on household cash flows at the yeah, moment. Exactly. People are running down running down savings, so consumption is holding up, but it's holding up at the expense of, of a, a reduced savings rate. And when we say consumption is holding up, you know that a lot of that's probably being funneled into uh, just the essentials because the, the inflation in terms of uh, just regular um, eating out or mm. Uh, just staples, you know, um, household shopping, that sort of stuff has been quite significant. And if you look at the GDP, the annual GDP number in current income, so that includes the effect of inflation, economy's running at 9.2%. Mm. But as you pointed out, it's 2.3% in real terms, which means a lot of that is inflation and that is costs that have to be absorbed by the the, the economy in, in some in some way. And just on that, I thought, 
we were we were chatting, uh, we were listening to the the Q and A uh, that was going you, you on. You weren't happy at all with that. You were quite. Well, angry. no, I just thought you know the, the questions that were being asked were yeah. so uh, just so pointless, yeah. and and you know the, I guess these journo's are in a position where they can ask the the RBA governor uh, some some really cru- crucial questions given what power they have and, and the control they have over the economy. And they were just these really softball, you know, shitty questions that I thought, you know, this is not giving an insight into anything. And one thing that uh, sort of quite annoyed me was someone asked about the government and, and is the government's fiscal stance impacting inflation? And, and um, Lowe uh, Low said, oh, no, you know, it's, it's pretty neutral um, and they are doing some good things. The, they're, they're trying to get household uh power bills down so he's actually endorsing a situation where the government is giving is giving handouts to people in form of um increased spending to lower their power bills which then obviously frees up more of their discretionary income to spend elsewhere instead of encouraging more supply and getting prices down from a supply perspective which is the way the market should be working and that way the government doesn't have to spend out of its own pocket in order to get prices down so so low was actually uh saying that's a good thing the government is getting energy prices down because it will lower the future inflation numbers mm-hmm. which you know purely from a theoretical perspective fine you know inflation's going to go down because the government's spending more money mm-hmm. to push prices down but we're not increasing supply it's a very very short term impact so and and then the other thing i think um i would have liked to have asked and and it's another chart we've got here which i'll just quickly show as well and and i talked about it just before going back to the lagged impact of rate rises here's another great chart that you dug out uh during the week and it shows the rba rate hiking cycle since the 1990s and as you can see in red, which is the 2022-23 cycle, has been by far the sharpest bunch of rate rises we've seen. Mm. Well, well past the 1994 uh, cycle, which uh, was was pretty infamous for its effect on bond markets and equity markets at the time. And this cycle has been, as I said, by far the the sharpest we've seen. Well, since at least 1990, but I would say probably a lot longer before that as well. I don't have all the the data, but to, to my mind, this is one of the sharpest rate rising cycles we've had. So there's a lot of monetary tightening still in the pipeline to come through. And no one asked him about how they view the lagged impact uh, mm. of monetary policy. They've alluded to it before. Uh, they seem to what they seem to adhere to that i think it was in april where they where they held off a rate rise and then they've mm. decided no we've got to we've got to keep going um so yeah it would have been good for someone to ask how they think about the lagged impact of monetary policy um and and you know how they're sort of viewing that in terms of further rate rises and that's why in many ways i think his hawkish commentary was more about trying to Put fear into people to say, "I'm going to keep rate, rising rates. I'm, good, I'm not going to let an inflation psychology get into, you know, the mindset of of households or, or whatever it might be." Rather than genuinely thinking he's going to keep raising rates, to, to my mind, that'd be absolutely crazy in in a in an economy that is highly leveraged. Um, 
and households are already in, in a lot of financial stress. And if you look at the amount of money that's uh, the, the fixed interest rates are going to reset this year, and that, and you can see that in the shrinking of the RBA's balance sheet as these fixed, uh, very advantageous fixed rates roll off. Um, that was um, a lot to do with the term funding facility that the RBA provided to all the banks back in 2020, 2021. Uh, their balance sheet is set to shrink by 15% this year, which means a lot of those fixed rate, and they've already started to to come off, but that will continue to happen throughout the year. So you're going to see more and more households be hit with interest rate shocks. So if 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 low keeps rising raising rates into this situation, I just think it's madness. So um, yeah, I would have liked to have seen some probably better questions asked, but maybe that's so, why uh, people like us never get invited to these things. So maybe they would have asked better questions at Baron Joey, and then he remember that whole fiasco when he got Say, asked. Which one was that? I think he was um, going to do a presentation at, at at Baron Joey in front of like market participants. Oh, that was a private. That was a private, yeah, event, wasn't it? Yeah, but I reckon they would have asked some better questions. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, but I think you, you were sort of saying that um, he's sort of trying to signal to the market he's you know sort of waving his sword and saying I'm going to uh, tame the inflation dragon, as was one of the journalists put it. And I think um, some of the latest data, I think. When the decision was made, traders put the probability of a further hike in July at 11%. On Wednesday, that rose to 18 And then yesterday, Thursday, the market was implying about a 23% chance of, a, of an increase to 4.35% um, at the next meeting. So will it keep rising? Hey, that's not keep... much different. That's not much yeah. different to what it was a week out from, uh, yeah. from, from the last decision. So yeah, yeah. who knows? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think maybe to to tie that whole discussion um, about the interest rate. So, what do you think is the biggest thing that the market maybe is not pricing in? Good question. Uh, I think if you look at the retail sector, I think from an investment perspective, that's where you know you should be looking to get to get interested because I think that has started to price in a lot of a lot of pain. Uh, I'm not one for buying stocks that are sort of you know heavily in downtrends and, and being sold off, but I think that's where a lot of value is. Um, what isn't priced in, I think we're going to touch on this in mm -hmm. a bit more detail uh, later yeah. on. I think the banking sector needs to be looked at quite closely because the banks are definitely cyclical. They're definitely uh, very... I guess leverage to to economic growth, mm -hmm. uh, given that they are you know massively leveraged institutions themselves. So, whereas you know they have they have come under pressure uh, over the past couple of months, bank stocks are well off their highs. But if we are moving into a into a sharp slowdown and the Reserve Bank either keeps raising interest rates or keeps mm -hmm. interest rates at a high level for for a, a number of you know, a good number of months, which I think they will, by the way. I think mm. if they're very focused on inflation and inflation is a lagging indicator, it's going to, in, in real terms, inflation will be a lot lower mm. on the ground than what the numbers that they're getting and they're going to react to. So uh, I think they keep rates um, higher for longer. I've said that for, you know, for the past couple of podcasts now. <laughs> and that is going to impact that is going to impact on the bank's earnings it's going to impact on the non-performing assets uh so 
to my mind, there's a lot that's not priced in to the banking sector at the moment. So we'll, we'll get into detail in that yeah. um, in, in a little bit, I think. Yeah, and but before we get into that into that segment, we'll uh, we'll want to talk about the the stocks of the week for this for this for this episode. And yep. yours, two stocks of the week, um, both fell sharply over the last I think couple of days, and those two stocks are Qantas and Seek. So maybe we can start with Seek because it sort of has relevance to the labor productivity we were talking about earlier. Yes, so I thought this was interesting. Uh, Seek is a great company. I've had it on my watch list for some time, and it really just hasn't ticked the the valuation box. It's just been uh, at a price where I just think, okay, risk and reward isn't isn't particularly favourable. Uh, so um, you know, I was just sort of holding off, and you know, quite mystified in in many ways to see this uptrend, uh, you know, continuing on. And, and and when the stock was reasonably overvalued, I'm thinking, okay, well, we're going into potentially a, a slowdown or, a, mm-hmm. you know, even a recession, seeks an employment portal, basically an online uh, employment portal, majority of its business in Australia. It's got overseas operations as well. Mm-hmm. But I thought, you know, how is this, how is this sort of continuing to, to, to trend higher? And then if you look at here, this is Monday, Tuesday, it broke down. Mm-hmm. This is on the uh, RBA's decision, broke down below this rising trend line mm-hmm. and continued to sell off sharply. So I've set this to a weekly indicator over the past week. It's down 8%. Mm-hmm. And just on the back of that chart that you showed, we showed earlier on labor productivity, mm-hmm. to my mind, that's just a pointer to say jobs are going to go. Uh, the more this economy slows down because that's the only way that businesses can keep on top of uh productivity they got to they got to shed shed labor because labor's not productive so this is an, a good indication on that front that that is potentially going to happen uh if you think about stocks they're always leading indicators for mm-hmm. what's going on in the economy and the market saying that seek is going to be in a bit of a bit of a slowdown phase with this break of this uptrend here so Thought that was interesting. The other one I just wanted to point out, uh, Qantas down uh, nearly 7% over the week. Uh, We mentioned this, I think it was in the first podcast, Mm. I just mentioned the fact that this could be uh, a period of distribution for Qantas and and when we talk about distribution when it comes to stock prices, after a decent uh, rise, you can sometimes get a period of volatility around the tops Mm. and that volatility is an indication that shares are being distributed, which means that uh, you know longer-term holders are, are, are exiting their their positions. So that's not to say Qantas is going to fall, uh, but mm. there's to my mind there's a an increasing likelihood that that share the share price will fall lower. And again, this weakness here was on the back of the uh, interest rate decision from the RBA, which is the market suggesting that. People are going to tighten their budgets. They're not mm. going to fly as much. Overseas holidays might be reconsidered, all those sorts of things. And I just thought it was interesting in the context of I read a article in the Fin Review this morning, fund managers pitching their ideas at one of, one of these conferences and, and one fund, fund manager came out and said, Qantas is, is going to outperform for years to come, huge amounts of demand. They're not going to decrease their prices back to pre-pandemic levels. And... Sometimes the way I think about these things, not always, but when fund managers get up in conference, conferences, everyone's, I guess everyone's human and, and there's not a lot of genuine 
contrarians out there who are willing yeah. to stand up and pitch their contrarian ideas in front of audiences of peers and be, you know, potentially looked at as, what's he talking about? That stock for, that stock's a dog. Mm. Whereas you can get up there and talk about Qantas. Qantas has done quite well even over the last, um, you know, last since the pandemic really. It's, it's, it's you know, gone from low low threes uh, all the way up to mid, mid sixes. So it's done really well. There's a lot going for it. There's a lot mm. to say that, you know, this is a, a dominant player in a duopoly. All those reasons you would say, okay, well, Qantas looks, looks quite interesting. But for my mind, you know, it, it has done very well based on the whole reopening theme and, and people wanting to travel again. That's all, that all makes sense. But here you're starting to see these signs that, you know, perhaps uh, this is as good as it gets for, for now. Mm. Um, and the fact that the share price sold off sharply on the back of the RBA's decision this week is potentially another indication of that. So, yeah, I just thought they were interesting stocks to point out. Yeah, I think me personally, travel travel stocks are an interesting in sector because I think Air New Zealand released an update, I think this week, and it said that it was surprised by the stronger demand than usual. I think in the latest few months, and it, I think it said it was usually it's off off peak period. And I think it's sort of now a sort of revised guidance because jet fuel prices are down. Fares are moderating, but not as much. So they're still quite high. And also the demand is there. I think a New Zealand didn't really anticipate being there. So I think it's, a, and I was trying to find maybe some statistics from uh, can, can, you know, can international airfare almost predict or be like a leading indicator of a crunch in consumer spending because it's such a big part of a person's discretionary budget. Uh, so I'm just really wondering, I think some travel stocks have seemed to hold up well, but surely how long can it really last if, uh, you know, uh, savings are already down to like what three point seven percent. Discretionary spend is already falling. So, I think I think some people have said that travel has been such a we haven't travelled for so long during the lockdowns that people are just no matter what, no matter how much money in the bank I have, I'm still going to travel. But uh, that surely can't yeah, and I last think that's, long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on. Well, I think it's true to extent a lot of that stuff. When it comes to airlines, depends on the capacity mm. that they want to what want to want to bring into the system as well. If and you know, a couple of times I was flying back down to the office in Melbourne uh, a few months ago, and the prices were just insane. Mm. And that that was more to do with comp- capacity. Yeah. They just weren't bringing capacity into the system. Uh, but, but potentially now with uh, Virgin back up and running in a in a in a more organised way. Um, they will either compete for market share or they will happily mm. manage their capacity together to, to maximize uh, profits. But, I mean, it's it's a very cyclical industry, very capital-intensive mm. industry. There's a lot of talk about Qantas needing to spend billions on on re, uh, reinvesting in its fleet. So that's a huge, mm. huge capex spend there. Um, to, to my mind, it's just it's just a tough business to to. To be involved in, and, and especially after share prices doubled, uh, it's not something that, as a value investor, I get particularly excited about. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the capacity thing is, I think, a huge determining factor in how well they've performed. I think Qantas is still operating pre-COVID levels, especially for international fares. So there's, they're running less flights, and clearly that's helping them with their prices. But anyway, I think that's enough for that's me right. talking about travel. And now it's what everyone's been waiting for, 
the 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 most important segment of the show what's not priced in and you've already alluded to what it's going to be about it's going to be about the aussie banks so maybe you can kick us off yep no worries well i thought it'd be interesting to look at the aussie banks in depth uh and when I, when I started doing some research on this this week, I was actually surprised by the divergence in some of the some of the names. So you know, obviously the big four banks: uh, Commonwealth, NAB, ANZ, and Westpac. Uh, we've got a couple of others that we'll show you as well, but they're the they're the main ones. Um, so but te- perhaps it'd be, be be best if I just give you a quick look at the charts just to to show you how the stocks have have performed um, and put this discussion into a bit of context so here is commonwealth bank it's pretty much gone sideways it peaked this is very similar to the, to the peaks in the market really uh november 21 it peaked and then it slightly beat that in february this year so that wasn't too long ago actually but um and if you look at where the share price has gone since then so there's your february peak and we're down to about so we're off about 14 percent in uh what's that a little less than about five months which is a decent a decent fall, but pretty much the stock has gone sideways for some time. Uh, I've drawn a little line here. This is roughly an area of support, which is around about ninety bucks. And if you just we zoom in a little bit here, I use these moving averages just to give me a bit of an indication of the medium term trend line. This is the fifty day moving average and the one hundred day moving average. When they cross over, that suggests that the medium term trend is turning down. And as you can see here, when the stocks tried to rally, it's rallied back up into this 100-day moving average and hit resistance. So while that's in effect, you could say that you know the, the sector's in a downtrend. This is the biggest stock, the, the most well-owned, the most well-loved stock in the sector. Mm. Uh, so this is you know, Commonwealth is always an important indicator. If you look at some of the other stocks in the sector, they haven't done well at all. This is National Australia Bank. It recently broke down below below from June 2022 when the market really sort of panicked about interest rate rises and the impact of inflation and there was a massive big sell-off there so it's actually broken down below there right on support at the moment uh, wouldn't be surprised if we look at the RSI this is a momentum indicator it's it's an even oversold uh, region here wouldn't be surprised if we do get a bounce often when Mm. stocks are very uh i'll just get rid of this when they're very stretched from their moving averages you do tend to get a bounce back up to the moving averages so this looks like a candidate for a bounce here around this um support line but nab's the worst performer out of all of them just in in recent times to 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 breach that low from last year which was a pretty pretty sharp and and major low anz obviously trending down as well but nowhere near its its lows from from june this is uh, Westpac, so not too far off those lows, but not not there yet, mm. um, but obviously in a definite downtrend as well. And just quickly uh, look at Bendigo Bank, similar sort of picture there. Bank of Queensland we looked at last week. That's got regulatory issues as well as mm-hmm. cyclical and, and competitive issues, so that's in a, in a decent amount of trouble there. And Macquarie Bank, completely different global bank, uh, operates i always look at macquarie as a bit of a sign of global liquidity um and it's you know it's holding up at pretty high levels but it's not it peaked it peaked here back in january of 2022 um so you know it's moving sideways but it's it's a long way from its peak 
and this is just the ASX 200 banks index and sort of an arbitrary line around where support is here, uh, but it's broken broken below there and sort of approaching that that major low from from June 2022. So all in all, uh, you could say the 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 sector is is trending lower. Uh, but what I wanted to chat about today was more from a valuation perspective and just to see um, when we talk about what's priced in, uh, is is this bad news? Is the uh, the rising rate environment, is that priced in or, mm. or is there potentially more to go? So I might just focus on Commonwealth Bank first and by doing that, I'll just bring that chart back up. Mm. Um, the reason why I want to focus on this first is because it's by far the – well, I guess I'll just say it's by far the most expensive Aussie stock there is. So if you look at the numbers, and I'm using um, financial year 2024 forecast for these numbers, it's predicted to – profits are predicted to fall a little bit next year, right? So mm-hmm. the, the market's saying that uh, 2023 was a peak in profits or profitability, uh, return on equity, which is always a good indication of, mm-hmm. of bank profitability – predicted to be 14.1% for 2023, uh, and it's going to predicted to fall to 13% next year, so slightly down next year. Mm-hmm. And that puts it on a still puts it on a PE of 16.4 times. Uh, its yield is 4.55%, and it's on a price-to-book value of 2.14 times. So when, when you look at bank valuations, I always look at price-to-book and return on equity, and those two metrics are closely correlated. So I'll quickly run through the other stocks to give you an idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, NAB's price to book is only 1.24 times and its return on equity is 11.4%. Um, Westpac's price to book, it's below book value. It's, it's oh, wow. um, 0.94 times book, but its return on equity is lower. It's only 9.4%. And same with ANZ, it's on a 0.94 times book uh, value and it's a 9.8% ROE. So Commonwealth Bank is clearly mm-hmm. almost double the value in terms of book value than the other three banks, yet its return on equity is only 13% relative to NAB's 11.4%. Mm. Now, I don't know the specifics of their book and their credit risks, mm. so that, they, you know, there could, be, there could be a bit involved there. I know CBA... Um, is considered to be, you know, the best bank, safest bank, all that stuff. But in my mind, CBA is is quite overvalued. And if you look at global peers, so for example, Wells Fargo mm-hmm. has a 10% ROE, but a price to book of just 0.86 times. So it's less than book value. It's got a 10% ROE and it's trading on a PE ratio of 8.56. Mm-hmm. JP Morgan has a forecast RO return on equity of 13.4%. And its price to book is 1.3 times. So if you look at CBA, price to book over two times, JP Morgan, price to book of 1.3 times, and JP Morgan's got a higher return mm. on equity forecast than it. So I don't think when we're talking about what's priced in, I don't think reality is priced in. My, when I do a, a valuation uh, using an 8% discount rate, my number is around 85 bucks. Mm-hmm. So... We're looking at about uh, here for a for a fair value for Commonwealth mm-hmm. Bank, um, which you know it's that's ten bucks difference to what it is now. 
But what the other thing that isn't being considered here, I'm pretty sure I might have it in this chart pack here. So the bad and doubtful debts charge over mm-hmm. here for the major banks all throughout this period here, you've had a decent bad and doubtful debts charge mm-hmm. and, and bad and doubtful debts spike up in, in times of economic weakness because obviously more, more loans turn bad and they've got to make provisions for those bad loans. Yep. Post-pandemic, bad and doubtful debts have actually contributed to um, contributed to profits because what they provided for previously, they didn't need to mm. actually write off. So they've, they've yep. written back some previous provisions mm-hmm. and increased their profits on that. They popped up a little bit recently. But in terms of the cycle, if we're going into a slowdown, those bad and doubtful debt yep. charges and provisions will pick up significantly. And I'm not sure... If I'm not sure if the um, if the market's pricing any of that in, I just think that mm. that's something that hasn't been considered at all, and that can have a big effect on a big effect on earnings and, and dividends as well. So that's something that, as we move forward in the economy and as things continue to slow down, if the RBA keeps hiking or keeps interest mm. rates high, I think banks are going to find that. They're going to have to make higher provisions, uh, which is going to reduce their their profits and profitability. And just using Commonwealth Bank as a as an example again, it, banks are cyclical. And the last time the cyclical peak occurred was back in two thousand and eighteen, and that's when it had a return on equity of fourteen point one percent. During the pandemic, its return on equity fell mm-hmm. to ten percent, and then it come back up to 14.1% uh, in 2023. So the time to buy banks really, if you're patient, is to buy them when uh, their provisions are rising, when the mm-hmm. economy's slowing, uh, and, and you know potentially they're having to raise equity, they might be cutting their dividends mm-hmm. a little bit. It feels like the worst time to buy, but it's mm-hmm. the time you actually should be buying for the next cyclical upswing. And I'll quickly show you why that's the case because I've got some uh longer term returns here for the banks that i think people might find interesting so this just shows the big four banks and mm-hmm. their price performance over the past five years so that's really from 2018 until now only the commonwealth bank has actually done well and it's had a mm-hmm. capital growth of 39 nearly 40 percent yeah nab uh is underwater after five years wow Obviously, if you're receiving the dividend over five years, you're still getting a dividend from that. But from a capital growth perspective, mm-hmm. you've had none over five years. ANZ is actually worse. It's down nearly 15%. And if you invested in Westpac, you're mm. probably still underwater after your, after your divvy. So it goes to show that buying at the wrong time of the cycle for banks can be quite um, disastrous. Not great for your investment <laughs> yeah. returns. And even if I push... Sorry, I was going to say, even if I push this out to 10 years, you know, it yeah. doesn't look particularly yeah. good. Westpac's down nearly 30%. ANZ's still down 15% and, and NAB's down 6%. The only stock that's done well over 10 years is, is Commonwealth Bank. So, um, you know, banks make a lot of money. They, they generate uh, huge net profits every year. They're always mm. in the paper about how much money they're making. They pay out, you know, good dividends. But they're not necessarily going to deliver you capital growth unless you buy at the right time of the cycle. And the only time I've ever recommended banks is soon after the um, the COVID crash. Uh, and I think at the time I might have recommended NAB 
mm. and Westpac. And that was only for a short amount of time. And I think we captured some of this rise, uh, some of this re-rate up to about here. Mm -hmm. I might have ex exited the stocks around there. I can't remember the exact detail. But, uh, yeah, banks are really for buying it at the, at the bottom of the cycle. And you can say that about just about anything really. But this is just to illustrate that the long-term ownership of banks doesn't necessarily deliver you uh, capital returns or capital gains. Um, yeah, which, is, which is interesting, yeah, because I think the big four banks live – loom large over the Australian investors' imagination. It's sort of... Um, Absolutely. But when you really look at the long-term performance, it hasn't been that great. And I think it reminds me of something that you wrote for your um, for your monthly in the Fattail Investment Advisory, which I recommend everyone to sort of check out. And you, and you said, when you're investing for income in the stock market, you're still investing in the stock market. Uh, it's not like you can yep. just go out and buy a company and automatically expect to receive that income yield. You know, that income yield isn't like a bond where it's fixed. It's sort of, it's fixed by the market and the market fluctuates. So if you see a juicy dividend yield, it's not set in stone that it's going to be like that uh, in a year or two years, especially if the, if the stock craters 10 to 20%. Absolutely. You know, what the market can give you in income, it can take away in capital. So, um, which is why I always just focus on, on valuations. And when you focus on valuations, and I always also look at charts and make sure uh, the chart and the, the fundamental and the technical story are telling the same story. <clears throat> so, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, I'm getting interested in the banks. Like I look at NAB and I think on a forecast ROE of 11.4 times and it's trading at just over book value, you know, using, using an 8% discount rate, which is roughly the, the return that you want to get long-term from mm -hmm. a, from an investment, uh, NAB looks pretty interesting, but the chart is not conducive to buying in. Like it, we might have a bounce, might have a short-term bounce, but that downtrend looks pretty well entrenched. So I don't really want to buy into a downtrend because, as I said, we might have a cycle where bad and doubtful debts have to increase. That will affect the equity and capital base of the company. Some of these banks, if it gets bad, they might need to raise more equity, cut their divvies, all that sort of mm. stuff. So you need to be careful when the cycle is slowing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that, that's some of those valuations are interesting, but I would say Commonwealth bank, it's really trading on its history of being yeah. the best bank in the, in the sector. And at the moment, I, not that I wouldn't continue to bet on that continuing to happen, mm. but I just think, you know, you, the return you get is based on the price you pay. And at the moment, Commonwealth bank, I'm guessing based on those comparisons with, JP Morgan, which is meant to be one of the best banks in the world, uh, Commonwealth Bank would be have to be one of the most expensive banks in the world. Yeah, and I think you sort of mentioned the bad provisions. I think in the latest ABS national accounts data, I think interest paid on mortgages grew further 11.5% during the quarter. And now the amount of money being spent servicing mortgages has doubled in the past year. So uh, the the key customers of the big banks are definitely struggling now and they will definitely struggle more in the months ahead as more variable rates roll over i mean fixed rates roll over um and i think there yep. was already a, a headline in the afr about the westpac chief and he was saying we've been getting a lot more calls to our helpline and then he quickly said but that's they're just calling to sort of check just to maybe plan ahead it's not actually at the moment correlating with bad, bad debts but he's sort of maybe laying down the foundations 
that you know something bad is going to happen down the track. But I think maybe well, it's a good leading indicator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think maybe just to 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 tie everything off. What do you think is the biggest risk? I think just to conclude to wrap it up. What's the biggest risk that markets aren't pricing in for banks? Is it just that they're valued too highly? They're uh, trading on their history instead of the the looming future. Well, I just think it's interesting that Commonwealth is is that the, the valuations are at mm. such a disparity with the other yep. three the other three look like reasonable value and you'd say mm-hmm. okay well that's that's not a not a bad play again i'm not a, a bank analyst i don't look at the specifics of their their lending and, and where those where those risks might be mm-hmm. but it seems to me that in those other three banks the market is pricing in a reasonable amount of risk in, in terms of the outcome with commonwealth bank it's not not pricing in that that risk at all but overall i, I do think the biggest risk to the banks is the rba uh, mm-hmm. And the RBA has pointed out in its statement on monetary policy every couple of months when it releases it that it is shrinking, the balance sheet's going to shrink. Uh, it pointed out, I think it was the February statement, mm-hmm. uh, that there's about $84 billion to roll off uh, of those that term funding facility, which equates to around about 15% of its mm-hmm. asset base over the course of, of 2023. Um, and so the, the, the flip side of that is that all... 84 billion worth of cheap loans are going to mm-hmm. reset into the higher variable rates. Mm-hmm. Um, banks will need to finance those loans with higher mm-hmm. um, with, with higher bo- higher borrowing. So they're obviously going to go out into the market and try to induce depositors to to deposit mm-hmm. with them so they can finance those loans. The question is, what's the margin they're going to make? Will the margin be the same, or will the margin mm-hmm. be um, will be tighter uh, based on the fact that they're probably going to have to pay more for their uh, for their loans and 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 they're probably, oh sorry, for their borrowings and the loans that they're making, there's a limit to how much mm. you can reprice those before. Oh sorry, how much the variable rate can rise before people mm. just start to to feel pain and they're starting to feel that pain now. But in terms of the banks, I reckon uh, what we should do is just keep our eye out for uh, magazine cover indicators. Death yep. of banks, uh, you know, banks are no longer you know the the, the safe. Um, yep. The safe haven, safe, safe haven that they used to be. Once you see those sorts of things, that'll give us a sign that it might be uh, might be time to buy. Yeah, great. Well, thank you for joining. And as always, if you've enjoyed this episode, like and share. And we do read the comments. So if you have any suggestions or feedback, please, please do drop drop a comment. But <laughs> be nice. It's great to chat with you. And I'll I'll see you next week. No worries. Thanks, everyone. See ya. Thanks for joining What's Not Priced In, your weekly source of unique ideas in the Australian stock market. If you've enjoyed this episode, please show your support by following us on your chosen platform and turn those post notifications on so you don't miss a thing. And uh, stay tuned for the upcoming episodes as we delve into new topics, new trends and new stocks. Thanks for your support. Hope to see you next week.